0: faith and reason podcasts new media for the new evangelization from franciscan university of steubenville find more at faithandreason.com
1: i guess first of all i, I want to thank dr schreck for giving the response and some of the conversation even last evening about relationship between bishops and theologians and I wish I would have had a theologian that I could return to and say, can you get this text ready for me? <laughs> um, it's one of the challenges of being bishop of a very small diocese because uh, when I jokingly said people will contact me and say, you know, I don't quite like what they have on the menu at the cafeteria, but it's literally that small and people have those expectations. But, And I can't remember everything that you commented on, but um, I did write down um, the question that you wove into your comments about um, how are you promoting the dialogue between faith and reason? And I go back to my uh, observation about, or my question is where do I begin? And um, there's so many ways of approaching it, and, and even though I'm not afraid to Make the, the hard decisions, that we talk about people want having the right to know whether uh, professors are teaching the authentic faith, and, and so forth. And an area it's consistent with the Catholic faith. As I mentioned, when I arrived in the diocese to at least begin um, my own dialogue proactively with persons that we need to engage in with the two Catholic universities, and they are quite different. And. Um, I'm forever grateful of the friendships I've established, especially with the sacred Province of the Friars, and um, I feel like a second home there. In fact, I have a key to the place if I ever want to get a a, a day off. I go back to the observation of um, uh, Dr. Heft who said, if there's an adversarial relationship between the bishop and theologians, there'll be a difficulty in uh, hiring faculty. I don't know that if I were to come on strong and start insisting on immediately changes to be made either the universities and the diocese, if we were to identify some areas of weakness or deficiency, I don't know that it would create a problem with hiring faculty and certainly, I don't think it would affect enrollment. Uh, because I think most of the students are drawn to those institutions, especially because they give a fine education within the disciplines that these students are seeking, um, that education, so they can go out and get a job when they're finished. It's not to say that it's um, all that bad in either one of those institutions. Um, and then along with that comes the challenges of what is exactly my role as bishop of the diocese in relation to those who are the administrators, the, the, the professors of the classroom, and, and, and most especially when I interact only on a very small scale with the boards of trustees of those two institutions. And in all of that, what I find, and, and I think, in, Monsignor, in your presentation talked about, you know, not just on a level of spirituality and piety and so forth, But if you could imagine the number of opportunities that I have to interact with um, those individuals involved in the animation of these universities and yet they want to have a dialogue with me as their pastor. Which I find incredibly encouraging and exciting. And so it's almost like a a kind of um, pre-formation before I can get to the level of formation that I said I was caught up with the idea of, um, Father Apoyard's suggestion about formation for students. And I've been thinking about it ever since I read that and then also putting together my presentation about what I could do to ask the presidents of either of those universities to start doing some things. But I often, and I wonder, you know, how we're meeting the needs of the, um, uh, faculty and administrators and so forth themselves. I know in the case of Dr. Foley, it's almost like um, I spend time as a spiritual director some days. And then he'll introduce me to certain individuals and say, Bishop, will you sit and talk to this person? And realize that um, the significance of someone paying attention to them in that capacity, and I love being a priest more than anything, so I'm, I'm very happy to do that. But there's so much more that needs to go on and even to identify all these things and some of the ideas that I've gotten through participating in this symposium gives me great uh, confidence. And I know Father Scanlon, I just saw him um, a few weeks ago celebrating mass in the nursing home where he now resides uh, Altoona. And um, when people hear talk about his great Wisdom and courage in what he did here at Franciscan University, and I wonder about having that kind of wisdom and courage in the context of my leadership in the diocese. Uh, The most exciting thing about it is my opportunity to start to do that has come at the invitation of the leaders of those institutions. They didn't wait for me to come to them, they came to me immediately, and um, it's been enormously satisfying for me, and I know there's opportunities for the future, next step, it's gonna take a while to get there. Again, thank you for your um, observations and reactions. I I just want to clarify
2: that first question about how are you promoting the dialogue between faith and reason. I wasn't really, I didn't maybe say it clearly, I wasn't challenging you to tell me, or us, how you're doing, but I, I guess I was just suggesting that might be an approach of opening dialogue to let, as bishop, a uh, bishop or a casting institution, the president, of the board, how are you promoting the dialogue between faith and reason, or how are you forming missionary disciples, and let them tell their story. Because too often I was, you know, she said they're afraid that this is an adversarial thing, but I was just, you know, I'm not in your position, but I was thinking. It is true, you really want to open dialogue and just let them tell their story about Let them tell you how they are doing this because they might look very different than we are or our head or whatever, but um, at least they would see you as a mission as listening, and I know we do that. As you said, they want to approach you.
1: And, and that's exactly what I, I hope to do, and as I said, the uh, things that I'm learning as we a uh, participant in this uh, symposium And I'll just leave it at this. One of the um, realities that um, when I arrived was there was a disconnect. There was no conversation between the bishop and those institutions prior to my coming there for some time, and so where do you you begin? And uh, as I said, it's exciting and encouraging to know that they invited me into that territory, and so it's a start.
3: Um, I'd like to say something about theologians and bishops. Um, uh, As president of the Catholic Theological Society of America, we have an initiative that is in its third year of sponsoring dinners with a bishop. And so a member of the society can um, apply to us up to 10 groups a year for a group of 10 to get together with their bishop and discuss a the theological text, and we'll uh, subsidize that to five hundred dollars per group uh, to promote the conversation. We just had one in Milwaukee with Bishop, Archbishop Listecki last week, and discussed uh, guarding the So theologians are, you know, trying to, um, as groups and individuals, reach out to bishops. And we also want bishop theologians to come to our convention and get to know us at that level. What's needed in this country are more bishops who are theologians. Um, With all due respect to the canons at the table here, Um, in Europe there's more of a tradition of bishop theologians, um, and I have met a number of them on the um, the ecumenical dialogues. I think that bridges communication because at least you've got some people in the magisterium who are speaking the same language and have the similar training. And, um, you know, so I, I realize that canon law is a very practical thing in your business, but, um, you know, maybe you could comment on why more aren't theologians? I wish I could. <laughs> <laughs>
1: To be honest, I was surprised when I was even considered, much less
4: having been appointed. And
1: and I agree, I think, having more bishop theologians um, involved. And
5: uh, I agree. Excellency, one of the things that you said toward the end of your talk, was interesting to me, in that you were discussing, in the light of Father House, observations, um, that, the, that you're interested, for instance, in knowing which speakers are on campus, not simply so that you can um, keep an eye on things, but because, and you said this offhandedly, but it's, it's it, it, it was interesting to me, you said, but so that from time to time I can send a letter of commendation. And for a bishop to Um, to engage the university community and the university administration in that fashion is actually quite important so that they know that you're watching with warm encouragement as well all the good things that can happen. At the same time, a university does have an obligation to to place itself (coughs) and considerable resources at the service of the church. And um, one of the, I think, great griefs in American Catholic higher education is that we have a lot of Um, institutions which have a lot of reach and influence, which are going in a different direction from the pastoral work of the local ordinary. That's not to say that a university is meant to be um, a catechetical institute or um, that the evangelization that happens by means of the university is meant to have the same character as the evangelization in a parish or a parochial school. But for these things to be working in concert with each other is really important. And then wonderful things can happen when, when uh, a bishop and the university um, are able to work together meaningfully. I think that's really important. And then I just, I can't pass up the opportunity to say how hiring for mission and a concern for Catholic identity has not caused us at the University of Mary to attract less interest from prospective applicants for positions. In other words, it it hasn't caused us to to have trouble attracting candidates. If anything else, it's brought higher quality people, people who, with a postdoc from Johns Hopkins, for instance, who never would have considered working for us, would it not have been for our Catholic identity? And that's been really an interesting thing to watch. And on the (laughs) theological circuit, the market isn't really great right now if you're a theologian. Um, and so when we when we advertise for a theology position, as I'm sure is the case here, we get 125 applications. And we can choose lots of different people. Um, and so I, I don't think that Father Heff's observation works. But maybe some of those theologians who can't get jobs at universities could be bishops. <laughs> <laughs>
6: some of us are camp lawyers and, um, I live in a community of 65 or so Jesuits and they're wonderful people I wouldn't trade them in for any group in the world um, to live with and they're fun uh, they're smart um, they're hardworking, and I'd say most of them are pretty holy uh, on good days um, I take a bit of grief being a canon lawyer, any Jesuit canon lawyer, not to all that many of us, really, certainly in this country. Uh, one of my colleagues, one of my confreres in the community is a professor of uh, uh, clinical law at, at the BC Law School. And he knows I'm a, a lawyer lawyer, besides being a canon lawyer, too. And he sometimes will make the distinction between real law and make-believe law, and he, refers to canon law as as make-believe law. And um, so I not only have to live with that, but I have to think about it and and what it means, particularly with respect to this specialty that I kind of ended up with as well as uh, Father Sean in the law that governs um, Catholic education, particularly Catholic higher education. And one of the things that I have come to think about more at the end of these, so this day and a half is how very different Catholic universities are uh, from each other, uh, being nonetheless still uh, in one way or the other Catholic. Uh, so uh, the University of Mary and uh, uh, the Franciscan University of Steubenville and Marquette University, where I used to work and uh, that I know, and Boston College and. Fordham, where I went and worked for a rather long time. They're all Catholic universities, and um, the question that I raise for myself is, well, what role does uh, canon Law have uh, in guiding them, uh, in um, maybe evaluating them, in determining what their relationship uh, might be with ecclesiastical authority? And I suppose the more I write about all this, the more I think about all this, the more the frustrated I become, because I want to try to be of some help. That's one of the reasons why I drafted this little um, uh, collection of, uh, of statues, which I didn't really share with you, because uh, time is running so short. But I know full well that those model statues would not be uh, acceptable to uh, large, Numbers of Catholic universities where uh, I've worked and where I've been most closely associated. Sometimes institutions that I've done some work with as a as a canonical advisor would accept those very uh, gladly. Uh, Sometimes the sponsoring religious institute would accept uh, statutes that are fairly prescriptive and fairly clear uh, much more readily than would be than would the administrators of the universities that they sponsor. That's a big, that's a huge issue uh, when you look at monasteries that uh, sponsor universities or other kinds of uh, religious institutes, and they vary broadly among themselves. So I guess I would think that I'll leave here with uh, uh, the question of how mm, how canon law can be a uh, of some kind of assistance and support. To the different uh, kinds of Catholic universities, um, and uh, often that's the way it works. That someone with a background like mine—I'm sure that that Father Sean and others have had this experience—will get a call, and uh, someone's going to ask for some help. Um, sometimes, you know, it might be one of these associations, including you know the self-appointed watchdog associations. Uh, I, I sometimes wonder about the productivity of those kinds of outfits, you know, what, what do they really finally hope to achieve given, as I mentioned in my presentation, the reluctance of the OEC to, uh, to get involved in some of these cases that are brought uh, to their attention. And while it's easy to joke about, uh, you know, all the emphasis in the U.S document on dialogue, uh, on, uh, you know, good relations and uh, and friendship and trust and so forth, uh, sometimes in the end, that's what you have to rely on and uh, maybe a a neuralgic uh, issue that's somehow resolved uh, in in a, a fairly benevolent way where the concerns of both parties uh, are uh, honored uh, and where those the concerns can sometimes be preserved at the end of a uh, of a negotiation, um, a conciliation, whatever it might be, that that perhaps is the role that can kind of law can play uh, most effectively today. And so I think that the people who do ADR uh, ought to uh, consider uh, Carefully, how they might be able to uh, help to assist um, uh, in resolving difficulties that arise within this context of Catholic higher education, whether it's uh, between a faculty member and an administration, between the bishop and an institution, between a number of the faithful uh, and the institution. Um, how can um, the church's long tradition of involvement with higher education uh, assist in resolving uh, some of those problems that arise uh, from uh, one day to the next
0: perhaps we'll start with with dr crosby you uh, want to ask a question first
2: Yes, I've uh, got a question for the uh, sisters uh, regarding the end of uh, the very interesting uh, discussion from last night. Uh, uh, you raised a, a really important question where you describe the work of the theologian in the classroom, uh, the task is to represent the position of the church correctly, all the reasons in support of it, but also to represent uh, the objections that are raised and it, one could have gotten the impression, uh, I want to ask you to expand a little more because I don't think this is what we really mean, but one could have gotten the impression that for a theologian in a university, you don't really need a believer. You just need a competent scholar who knows what the church teaches and reports that faithfully, uh, and never reports all the objections, as if the living faith of the theologian were. An optional thing as far as his work is concerned. And that raises the question of, of, of the unity that in the Catholic tradition we aim at which we mean, uh, the, the living faith of the church and then the theological reflection on it. And the idea of uh, the theologians who do their work on their knees, uh, where that it's not just a highly professionalized theology, but uh, where theological refre- reflection. It's really one with uh, 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 strongly with faith like, for one thinks of that idea of John Paul that, uh, in Fides Razio, that we, uh, the sapiential, the wisdom like dimension of philosophy and theology has to be recovered. If uh, we just have professionals who confidently teach what the church teaches, why? There's no wisdom in that. And so that deeper wisdom that comes from the integration of of faith, life, and then discipline intellectual perfection. maybe you could uh, stand on uh, on that.
3: Okay, I certainly believe in that integration, and I'm also um, one of the voices in my department that's rather strong in terms of when we, we recently had an ethics hire. I have a firm conviction that all our ethicists on our faculty need to be Catholic, because my position is that ethics intersects with ecclesiology in very important ways, especially when you're talking about healthcare ethics and religious directives and that kind of thing. So, um, I would just say, you know, politically in the department, I put myself on that particular line, but. Um, What you're describing has been, to to use two foreign words, is paideia and wissenschaft. You know, wissenschaft is the scientific knowledge and paideia is spiritual formation. And I think um, theological education certainly engages both and the ideal is that both are embodied in the person of the instructor. In that conversation yesterday, Um, uh, It was in response to a very specific question that a student asked about, can I trust the instructor, and what I was basically saying is that it's not a question of whether you, first of all, I think any academician has a responsibility in terms of correctly presenting and correctly labeling knowledge, you know, so that you correctly present it and you say what its basis is and what its reasons for it. I also think that in a pluralistic society, you have to recognize what the critiques are and that students want to know them. Now, I am not trying to then retreat, you know, into saying that the the instructor is just this impassioned, you know, dispassionate, person, but you embody something and, and you embody something by witnessing, but witnessing is not the same as proselytization. So I think students always need to retain their freedom in a classroom. Um, and that that doesn't mean I'm disengaged from my personal face stance or my subject matter. But when I'm in front of a classroom that's 60% Catholic, you know, it raises challenges, you know, in terms of, of um, presenting information, but, you know, presenting what the church teaches, giving the values behind that, which is not just factual information, but it, it's, Laying it out, and then ultimately students have a responsibility. I don't take their responsibility away from them in terms of how they receive that. So that's, so that particular, what I was saying yesterday was in response to a very concrete question that got posed about, um, and I've been posed that question in informal conversations, and I'm kind of bothered by it frankly because the question I I get here is how can I trust my teachers how do I pick a doctoral program you know where I know they will teach me Catholic teaching well you know at a certain level especially when you're involved with graduate education there's a responsibility you know that a, a student I mean it's possible to study with somebody you disagree with and still learn that doesn't, just because you study with someone doesn't mean you become their disciple. Um, but it's taking personal responsibility for, for what you learn and what the personal stance is toward. Um, Dr. Healy's next.
2: Yeah, I uh, also wanted to
7: address this to Sister Susan. Um, because you're in a faculty within an
5: institution and you know a lot about other institutions through the Catholic Theological Society despite the fact that some of the canon law questions, authority questions haven't been so completely addressed, it seems to me one of the tremendous positives of the last 25 years has been these intense and ongoing discussions about what is our Catholic identity in so many institutions and you just as uh, a speak a little about some of the fruits that might come from that. Uh, and, uh, I think, extorted. I mean, the fruits about Catholic identity? About, uh, yeah, about the you know, institutions being
3: inspired to really take another look at a solid look at I could probably talk about this better in a year. One of the things I'm going to be doing in the spring is I'm going to be co-directing a faculty seminar on Catholic Jesuit identity at Merckat and it's the first time I will personally be asked to do that. Um, I'm looking forward to it and I'm excited about the possibility. One of my concerns about Catholic identity is I think many of my non-Catholic colleagues uh, massively misunderstand Catholicism and that's because Catholicism gets um, reduced to some important hot-button issues, and it and it and I say reduced to that because they hear contraception, they hear abortion, they hear gay marriage, and the conversation stops there. <coughs> now, what I said yesterday, you have to realize that if you recall how. Um, I was introduced as you know. One of my areas is the intersection between sacramental theology and ecclesiology is my specialty, and so I chose to talk, not accidentally, yes, in my talk about a sacramental um, intellectual process for how to integrate faith and reason in a Catholic uh, university, and what I. One would want to do, I mean, one of my primary things of what I would want to communicate to a faculty is not, not to start with those specific issues where then the conversation tends to stop dead because you're at an impasse, but to start with what the incarnational sacramental view of Catholicism is. And it's out of that broader context that smaller things make sense. Now, for five years, I was involved with the International Baptist Catholic Dialogue. And when we got into the the room with the Baptist for the first time, the conversation went immediately to um, the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption, you know, the two papal definitions, because they just ask, it turns them on, on their heads. And my response to the Baptists was, you don't start there. You you can't start there because it took, it took till, you know, 1950 to get to the assumption and that's almost 2,000 years, you know, that it took Catholics to the point of defining that as infallible doctrine. Our conversation needs to start with the scriptures with Mary in the scriptures before you can get to the papal definition to have that make sense. And I think it's that kind of pedagogy that we have to engage, engage faculty members with. That you don't, again, start with the hot button, but you start with the broader, you know, whether it's scripture, whether it's sacramental, incarnational, worldview, um, but, but you start with the big picture before you get to the finer points.
5: So okay. you, were, you were talking, Sister, about um, getting caught up in some of the hot-button issues. After the Holy Father did his interview, she was told her, uh, The news media was very eager to talk to some bishops about, well, what do you think now? And I, I remember seeing an interview with a bishop, and the you could see the, the eagerness in the eyes of the, newscasters, he looked and he, and he said, what do you think, the Holy Father is saying that you're not supposed to be talking so much you know, all the time about abortion and contraception and homosexuality and all that. What do you think about that? Uh, that you're not supposed to be so obsessed. Did you know, the mission. And the response was, what are, you, what are you talking about? That's all you were ask us about. <laughs> it's not that we These are the only types of questions that we get. But what's interesting is it points to It points to the Holy Father's point that that we live in an age um, in which it's difficult to talk about the fundamental questions of faith. um, And that joy has to be the hallmark of what we do. That contagious, effervescent joy has to be the mark of the believing community in order for us to be able to break through such that people are willing to listen to us at all. And that's really important. And I want to say something in respect to, going back to Dr. Crosby's question uh, about that, because um, when we talk about a theologian on his or her knees, which is really important, and you you mentioned um, staking a position that an ethicist hired should be a Catholic. It is the case sometimes, and I see this more now in the work that I do than I've ever seen before, that, that, that people come into my office for an interview and they're utterly Orthodox, but they're very angry. you know And so sometimes you can get people who are um, who are practicing Catholics who really personally, would be a counter witness to our students and to the wider world of of what the church really stands for. And that I think is something for us, for us as a group of of believers and disciples for the examination of our conscience, that that really it's important uh, that we heed this call to joyful missionary discipleship so that we're able to give good witness. Because it's, it's, uh, when I talked about the subtleties, or, uh, Dr. Healy said, the nuances of hiring permission. That's one of the things that we need to think about. Um, you can't always tell if a person uh, who's interviewing for a position is a person of prayer. But you can tell if there's a capacity for it. And then you can tell if they're really angry. And that's not great. Actually, I have a two-parter. In Monsignor Shay's last comment started to
0: get to the substance of the first question I want much of what we're talking about is historical, and the application of Excordia over the past 25 years, the impact, the role of John Paul II in framing uh, Catholic universities and, and uh, what we do here at a Catholic university. How do you see the influence of Pope Francis as we move forward on the life of a Catholic university? Um, and particularly reflecting upon his call to evangelization, which has been so prominent over the last few years. Uh, And then his directive, when he met with the board of trustees from the University of Notre Dame about a year ago, calling them to uh, defend and promote and uh, advance the Catholic identity of the Catholic university. The second part has to do with uh, the the conference that the Congregation of Catholic Education is planning for in November. uh, Looking forward to, again, the future of Catholic education, both in Catholic (coughs) universities and Catholic schools in general. Um, and there will be a likely, a, an instruction that will come forward, Father Conn will be thrilled to hear that one. An instruction to come forward to help us to uh, work in Catholic universities to continue uh, that great project in the future. What kind of things would you like to see addressed in that instruction to help us, uh, to benefit us as we plan for the future <coughs> of Catholic education, particularly in universities?
3: Well, I answered the first part. You answer the second part. (laughs) Um, I think the influence of Pope Francis is huge, absolutely huge. I think it's a, because of his openness and his pastoral sense, and it's his person. I mean, to go back to the other question, it's what his person communicates. This is opening people to hear things they couldn't hear before, you know, and so it's opening the door to them. You know, I've heard um, women in swimming pools say, I used to be a Catholic, you know, and I think I could think about coming back now with this pope. Now, this is a swimming pool conversation, you know, uh, so evangelization happens everywhere. But, um, I, Um, I gave a talk to my community a couple weeks ago and I waved his document in the air uh, Evangelii, and I said this is what we should use to prepare for our next general chapter and um, it's that notion that he's not about self-maintenance, he's about mission he's about discipleship and the spirituality is there because first you encounter Jesus you receive the joy of the gospel. That joy of the gospel then radiates. And and that's, I agree with you, that's what has to happen. Um, and that's how it happens in a Catholic setting.
5: You know, um, it is peculiar, isn't it, that um, when, when we go, Father, to the meetings of college presidents, uh, Francis is much so and um, I think his effect has been very great. It's a bit of a perplexity in that um, Karol Wojtyla and Josef y- Ratzinger were both luminary academics. And this isn't an academic. Um, and the academy is so grouchy in general. that It's a wonderful thing to see some residents. I think that's extraordinary. Um, when we talk about what we would like to see uh, from this meeting the Congregation for Catholic Education is um, delivering, maybe, maybe a, a further encouragement of this joyful witness, uh, of what it means uh, to witness in this way, and to begin with the encounter. Um, would be good uh for catholic universities as they frame a way forward because when i talk about encountering young committed catholics who are angry um, oftentimes it has to do with the dynamics of the culture war in this country uh and there's a lot of shrapnel you know around these types of neuralgic issues and people get um, People get wound up and injured in the midst of that because we forget that at the very beginning, uh, we're dealing with a situation in which uh, the victory is won already. (laughs) And uh, that our work, um, our our work isn't to, um, to fight to preserve something which inevitably is going to die. That's not what we're about.
4: Comments. One about canon law and the value of canon law. I think I kind of take issue with the sister about um, you, know, you juxtapose uh, theology and canon law. I think canon law is where the rubber meets the road, and I don't think you can divorce canon law from Catholic truth. I think it's a proposed a guide, guidelines for how Catholics are supposed to live the faith. And most Catholics <coughs> in the pews, most average Catholics, have no idea. About canon law, even the canon law exists, and 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 I think it would be very valuable for the average Catholic to understand that you can't explain canon law without availing yourself of Catholic truth. And I think that's just from my own life and my own experiences. I think the Protestants are doing a much better job of translating um, Christianity into daily life. And, uh, giving people guidance as to how they have to answer the critical questions in their own lives. And um, I think, uh, I, I believe, as Father said, that it is a the a moment for Catholic universities. I think the whole world is turning towards faith again because they felt uh, that the secular answers are inadequate. But without reason and without um, a certain authority, you know, the faith is, we're getting fanaticism, in every area. And um, anyway, I just, I just feel that a knowledge of canon law, a knowledge of, of how Catholics are supposed to live their lives according to Catholic truth is, is critical. And I'm just wondering um, if a lot of Catholic leaders and Catholic clergy are up to the task. You know, it seems like they are afraid to address those issues, perhaps because they're going to get friction. And that's where we need a lot, lot better leadership. And, and I don't think that some of these hot-button issues are um, neuralgic issues at all. I think no matter what issue you take, and of course certain issues are going to be more problematic than others because you're running head-on to the secular world, and, and, uh, which is diametrically opposed to Catholic truth at this moment. We should not be afraid to take that on. And we shouldn't be afraid in the sense that it's going to be negative or cast us in a bad light. If we explain things and if we understand and know
6: how to explain things um, uh, with Catholic truth, it's going to be joyful it's going to lead to the underlying joy of what Catholic truth is. I think canon law is a rather more modest discipline than what it is that you describe. So I don't know that canon law is really too concerned with the everyday life of uh, believers uh, except in some fairly restricted areas. I mean, I think that uh, law does regulate um, issues of Catholic worship, for example. Um, it has a few things to say about schools and universities, yes to be sure, but I would say if you would ask a town law student, I, I mean, a, a higher level canon law student, not a seminarian, but someone who's studying canon law, say, well, you know, book three is something that I've not spent a whole lot of time with, and probably I'm m- more uh, interested in uh, issues uh, that have to do with marriage, that have to do with the adjudication of the of the validity of marriage, uh, which have to do with, say, the discipline of the clergy, uh, especially in, in uh, matters of, of uh, use, uh, and so forth. Uh, it says a fair amount about property, a fair amount about um, ecclesial structures of uh, governance of the diocese, a um, huge amount about consecrated life and and how that's structured and regulated, and so forth. But it doesn't really deal with, say, the hot-button issues. That's not the concern of laws, the concern of moral theology. Obviously, there are a few things that few delays, a few, you know, offenses, moral offenses, that carry with them an ecclesiastical penalty. But for the most part, uh, canon law doesn't really touch the average uh, believer too often uh, in uh, a week or a month or a year. Uh, and I think it's important for us canonists to be aware of the, of the, the modest uh, scope of our discipline um I'm very interested in this forthcoming Synod uh, and I think that the issues of marriage and family do have important um, uh, implications for how uh, Catholic believers live their daily lives um, how the Synod works and what the Synod is, uh, what uh, relationship it has to the teaching authority of the Pope and the College of Bishops the teaching authority of individual bishops the functioning of the Episcopal conferences yes I think all of that is likely to be quite interesting and it is also likely to eclipse you know uh, the meeting the following month uh, of uh, sponsored by the uh, the congregation um, but I think that, that that might it might have an impact I and mean, who knows what what consequences the sin is likely to the synod is likely to have for the life of the church. Um, I think that there'll be some people will be very pleased, and others will be very disappointed with the results of the synod, whatever uh, whatever they are. I mean, I do think we're seeing a fair amount of fraction in the church, and uh, I think that's something that we need to be concerned about and probably pray about um, fairly um, fairly consistently between now and, uh, and next year. Um, I have a feeling that the um, that the meeting in November will not be all that different from the the preparatory meeting that some of us uh, were invited to last year, and which really did highlight a lot of kind of the happier things about uh, about Catholic higher education, the sort of thing really that we hear plenty about when uh, the mainstream of Catholic. Uh, Uh, colleges and universities want uh, to um, showcase the things that they're proud of and that usually has to do with things like uh, uh, campus ministry, uh, liturgies uh, that students participate in often in large numbers, uh, retreat programs, um, service uh, programs both uh, uh, at home and abroad and so forth. doesn't want to address. I, I, my guess is that the congregation is not going to be addressing too much. Uh, you know, some of the the, the questions of uh, uh, conflict with theologians, or even the the questions of campus culture, which you know I, I continue to think is kind of a, a very important uh, topic. Maybe one one last question.
7: First of all, I just want to thank you all so much for this very enlightening and enriching discussion. Uh, I feel bad that many of our students have left the break, but we're preserving it for posterity, and I'm sure many of them will be assigned to watch various parts of this in the weeks. Uh, so thank you for that, and I apologize, because in some respect, I'm giving me part of my homework. But the HOC was, was just here, our, our accrediting body, and they asked us a very interesting question that I'd love to get sort of a lightning round take on, and that was, we talked a lot this weekend and had some very thoughtful comments about how we create a community of faculty staff and administrators who are integrating faith and reason. And the question I keep coming back to is, we are, what do you said We invite the students into this community, and I think that's right, that they become part of us for a short time, and it's so vital that when, when they leave, we somehow know that we've succeeded in getting them and their, their own lives to integrate faith in the lesson. So the question is twofold. Quickly, first of all, do you think we're succeeding? Really? There's a collection of, of large and varied collection of the Catholic Are we succeeding? And the second part is how do we know we're succeeding? What is it you know, as soon as meet, that students need, the day they leave society, because I look at this society and I sometimes have word or fail. Like, how would you answer that? would be great for one side of the same story. would like to begin? <laughs> <laughs>
3: well, it's in front of me. Um, <clears throat> one of the thoughts that is circling around in my head, so I probably should say it, is that I think we need to recognize diversity within Catholicism and that there's legitimate diversity of spiritualities. There's a a legitimate diversity of Catholic expressions that it's, you know, we're a big tent as a church. And um, so I think the answer to your question is going to be varied depending on the kind of institution. I mean, Marquette is very different from Steubenville and that's okay. You know, I don't think we're called to be Stupidville, and you're not called to be Marquette. Uh, but that doesn't say that what we're doing is not legitimate. Uh, and in terms of, you know, you're asking the assessment question, the A question. Um, and what you're asking is not measurable in the quantifiable way that accreditation asks for but I think you see it in the kinds of graduates down the line 10 years, 20 years out that you produce. You know, and for Marquette, it was Foley who was a journalist, you know, in the Middle East and lost his life. He was witnessing, you know, to human rights in a way. And so I would say, you know, that's one witness to something that went right. At Marquette, it's only one person, but you multiply that with your graduates and see what what the effect is, you know, down the road.
5: I don't think that there's an answer uh, that would be satisfactory to the Higher Learning Commission or to whoever it is who accredits Franciscan University. But I think I think that there's a secret history of the world, which is the real history of the world, and which we're not able to see very easily. I think if we look with sober eyes, there are very grim things on the horizon. And that there's a lot that one could be concerned about in our culture and in American higher education and Catholic higher education as well. I I, I don't I don't mean to say that. The cheerfulness isn't in order. It certainly is in order, <laughs> but that's for reasons that are hidden from our view. But I think about providentially what's happened here, and then I back up and look providentially at what the Lord is doing at other places in small ways and big ways. And there are many, uh, there are many reasons for hope as well. Most of all, that um, the, that the Lord has risen. But I think. Um, I, I, I don't, I, I agree with Sister that the assessment in terms of looking and saying, you know, our graduates go to mass at higher rates than Catholics who go to state schools. That's true, but I don't you know a lot of dance about that. The only thing I would
1: add to it is not so much from the assessment side, but um, the appreciation of those students who had graduated from this Catholic university or any other institution, are they equipped to continue to do what they began in their course of studies? And so that it doesn't stop there with a diploma or with a um, opportunity for employment. I spoke a little bit in my presentation about the service that is provided to me as diocesan bishop through the graduates of these Catholic institutions because in large numbers they populate the classrooms of our elementary and high schools. And I wanna make sure that they didn't just stop when they graduated from uh, college with either an undergraduate degree or a master's degree, but are they continuing the mission and the purpose for which they sought to have that kind of education? Because the church isn't standing still and as Monsignor said, the world isn't standing still. There's a lot of things continuing, and I, I'd be more concerned about that kind of um, forward look of things rather than just
6: assessing where are they at. I'd just like to piggyback on something that Sister said um, in response to your question, and forgive the, the personal observation. Uh, I was struck when Father Sean's homily today talked about you know, being the, the last of several children, I'm an only child, and this past year, I lost both of my parents. they led good and happy lives, the two of them. They were at a great age. But, uh, so I'm bereft of family. Um, And uh, my, the joy that I'm able to to live with uh, has so much to do with my long association with Catholic uh, higher education. Well, education generally in high schools and in uh, and, and a few colleges. Uh, I have developed friendships uh, with so many people, and uh, I think that that is something that really it, it can be multiplied. So you think about it, everyone who's involved here, whether it's a student or a professor, uh, think about the, the colleagues and the students and the professors uh, that that we have interacted with over the years, they in many ways are like family to us. At least they are to me, and I think that that's a distinctive characteristic of Catholic schooling, um, maybe of private education more more broadly. But um, certainly uh, that kind of human dimension, where uh, relationships can uh, can be uh, born, uh, nurtured, uh, and and serve us all for a lifetime, Uh, I think that that, that's in the gospel, I think that's in the nature of discipleship, Uh, and uh, I think that's something that we can all rejoice in.
0: Faith and Reason podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.